Bibles with you this morning, go ahead and open them up to the book of 1 Corinthians. We'll be in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 this morning. And if you don't have a Bible, we have Bibles there in the pew in front of you. The red is large print and the black is normal print. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're taking a break this morning in light of Resurrection Day from our series where we're going through the whole Bible. And we're going to just zero in on one specific place here, the gospel from 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4. And if you are visiting with us here this morning, first of all, let me just welcome you and say we are grateful uh, to have you here with us. Um, This is what we do every Sunday. So in, in some sense, Uh, There is something about Resurrection Day for a church that continues to proclaim the resurrection Sunday in and Sunday after, uh, Sunday in and Sunday out, that is is not out of the ordinary, is not exceptional. But we're going to take this day to really meditate on the truth of the resurrection itself. When we gather, we sing psalms, we sing hymns, we sing spiritual songs to God, to one another. We, we open up his word together as those who have discovered this endless treasure and just want to behold what he has to say for us today. And we believe that just as in springtime the rain comes down from the sky and waters the earth, so shall it be with the word of the Lord. It comes into our hearts and it springs forth life. So in this sense, every Sunday, somebody was saying this morning, every day is resurrection day because Jesus is alive, but every Sunday really is meant to be a sort of celebration of the resurrection. I hope we understand that. It's not something particularly unique about this day. But let's dig in here to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and I'm gonna read verses one through four. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this gospel, this announcement, this heralding of the message that we have hope of salvation because Jesus Christ has died for our sins and he didn't stay dead, but that he rose victorious over the grave by your spirit, by the power of your spirit, and that same spirit is available today for all who trust in Christ. So Lord, I pray that those who are in Christ this morning would have a sense this morning of renewal and have that joy of their salvation, of your salvation restored. And if there are any here this morning that have never known that resurrection power, that you would make it clear that you would reveal yourself through Jesus this morning. And we pray all of this in his name. Amen. Get my water. 
One other thing I meant to say is that something that is, is quite special about this particular Resurrection Sunday is that we sort of have a, a resurrection, uh, a symbolic resurrection of, of another kind where we have people returning to the congregation for the first time, some of them uh, in over a year. So another way that um, the resurrection theme is just being sung loudly here this morning. And this is a very satisfying thing to us that we have this renewed fullness of fellowship. And I would say all of us, pretty much from the time that we are born, long for a resurrection. That's the argument I'm going to make this morning. All of us, from the time that we are born, from the first time that we recognize that things are not as they ought to be, we begin to long for a resurrection. Perhaps more than any other day throughout the year, we observe this here on Resurrection Sunday. Many of you are actually dressed a little bit differently than you would be on other Sundays. There are different colors that I see in the pews this morning. Though you may not realize it, we are doing this as something that is symbolic of the bloom of springtime. We are imitating right now what is happening in nature. The green has arrived. The pink and the purple and the yellow tulips are emerging from the dead black and white of winter. And for golf fans, if any of you out there are golf fans, this week we are only a few days away from the magnificent magnolias of the masters, a tradition unlike any other. But why is it that there is is always such anticipation and hopefulness around this time of year, around springtime, when we see the flowers coming up? Why are we so easily taken in by such good resurrection stories? The springing forth of life up, up out of what was surely dead. The stuff that makes for very compelling drama. This motif is seemingly everywhere in Disney movies. It draws us into every episode of Fixer Upper. Really, it's the motivation behind any restoration project that we undergo in our lives. And I would say that it is what everyone is longing for because it's what everyone needs, a resurrection. The passage that we just dove into this morning comes to us at the end of a very long letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to a newly born church in a bustling Greco-Roman city. Though this was written almost 2,000 years ago, in many ways, Corinth was no different than America. There was commerce, there was crime, there were many philosophers with many competing philosophies, there was plenty of self-indulgence, as well as a lot of spirituality. People were being born every day, people were dying every day, people were playing sports, people were fighting pandemics, the people were having parties, many were poor, some were wealthy. Many were surely feeling overwhelmed at the way the world was changing so fast. And some, I'm sure, were confused. Some, I'm sure, were desperate. 
many people were trying to figure out how they could make things better. The more things change, as the adage goes, the more they stay the same. Now, it's, it's easy for us to, to kind of get distracted and get caught up and get uh, in the busyness of life to, to begin to believe that day by day, we as a society are somehow progressing and making our lives better so that we're moving from death to life, that we are continually improving by our technology, by our education, through our medical research. And don't get me wrong, I am grateful for these many graces that God gives us. But you see, no matter how far we seem to advance as a human race, we still have not figured out how to shake the problem of our human condition on our own. What we have learned is that people still die. There is still evil in people's hearts. Some choose to take their own lives. Marriages still break down. Children still grow up fatherless today. And we all still feel powerless to fix any of it. The Apostle Paul knew this very well. He had experienced himself the futility of human striving. He knew that there was only one hope. One hope for life beyond this one. One hope for the transformation of this life. And one hope for overcoming the evil that is within and the evil that is without. It was what everyone was longing for and it was what everyone needs. And he knew that it could only come from the same God who could make everything out of nothing. The same God who makes tulips burst to life just weeks after having three feet of snow on the ground in Nebraska. Paul was afraid for this church. Paul was genuinely concerned for the church in Corinth. This fledgling new church, he was afraid that they might forget the first principle. That they might forget the one thing that changes everything. That they might forget the one thing that they needed to hold on to most. Earlier in this letter, if we were to go back and, and look at a summary of this letter, we would see him scolding them time after time because they had gotten distracted and they had drifted off course. They were creating divisions. They were suing one another. There was all kinds of promiscuity and licentious behavior happening even within the church. So what he's going to do here in the second to last chapter is he's going to bring them back in. And he's going to say, this is the thing you need to hold on to more than any other thing in life. And so he says, now I would remind you, brothers, which is a way of dressing the whole church, brothers and sisters. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received. The gospel. It's kind of a, a churchy word, and we, we throw this word around a lot. And particularly in this church, we want to make a big emphasis of the gospel. And so sometimes we speak about it in shorthand as if everyone knows exactly what we're talking about. But the truth is that whenever I meet 
uh, a stranger out on the street or a friend I've known for a long time or even people who have been in the church for a long time and I ask them, what is the gospel? I would say most of the time what I find is an inability to explain this word. Paul here says that understanding this gospel is non-negotiable. He says that if you do not understand this message, you are missing the one vital truth in all of the universe. This is the gospel which you first received. It's the gospel in which you stand. The gospel, this message in which you are standing, it's the gospel by which you are being saved. Now, if this gospel is is something in which I stand, that is to say something in which I can firmly stake my life upon, then it must be a pretty big deal. We should probably listen to what Paul has to say. I wouldn't say this about any other thing in all the world. Imagine saying something like, the mathematics in which I stand and by which I am being saved. Or America, by which I am being saved. Or that New York Times bestseller, by which I am being saved. Or that anti-aging cream or health supplement, by which I am being saved. Or even that retirement savings account, by which I am being saved. Nobody talks like that. We may think that, but nobody is bold enough to admit it. What kind of message is this? A message that you could stake your life on and find eternal salvation. Only the gospel. He says this gospel, if you hold fast to it, if you will cling to it with your life, unless you've just believed in vain. Unless you just raised your hand once upon a time and said, oh yeah, I believe those facts, yet it has no bearing on your life. Unless you believed in vain. He says, for I delivered to you as of first importance, first importance, what I also received. And you remember where he received it. He received it from an encounter with the living Christ himself on the road to Damascus while he was headed to persecute Christians. So take a time out for just a second and think think about this matter of first importance importance. We as a society have been devoting a lot of time this past year to trying to solve a pandemic, trying to figure out racial harmony in our communities, try to break the bonds of systemic injustice, injustice, exploring the science of climate change in order to keep things going on just a little bit longer. Are these the things of first importance? Are these the things that we should be giving the most of our time to? What would you say in your life is of first importance? I know everyone here being in church on a Sunday would probably say, well, of course, the first importance in my life is Jesus. But are you willing to let me look at your checkbook, your calendar, the activities that you participated in, to ask you how much time you spent communing with the Father this past week, how much time you spent in the scriptures. What would you say in your life is truly, this morning, is truly of first importance?
Gallup did a survey just a few years back with that same question. What is the most important thing in life? The top five were family, health, work, friends, and money. Family, health, work, friends, and money. Now these aren't bad things, right? These are good gifts that God gives us. Religion was sixth, although I don't know what was exactly meant by religion, but all of the top five ranking items on this survey, think about this, all the top five on this survey are with us maybe 30, 40, 50, at best 80 years. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world? To have his family, to have his health, to have a good career, to have good friends. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world, yet to forfeit his eternal soul? Paul would answer the question in a drastically different way, and yet he would answer it with 100% confidence. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. It's what everyone is longing for. It's what everyone needs. And it's of eternal importance. Not a piddly 80 years, but eternal importance. And it's the news and the reality that turned a self-righteous Christian-hating, arrogant, murderous Saul into a humble, Christ-exalting, church-planting Paul. This is the same message that made both fishermen and tax collectors and wealthy wise men from the East, as well as the destitute and the diseased and the disenfranchised of the world, willing to give up everything else just to follow. And it's the same message that has transformed the lives of people in this very church to include drug addicts and work addicts, agnostics and the apathetic, people from broken homes and people with broken marriages, self-righteous people who thought that they were going to heaven based on their own behavior and their own good works, as well as some who are here today who once thought there was no way heaven would ever take in such a wretched sinner. You see, it doesn't really matter what the personal circumstance is. It doesn't matter the background or the past of the person because the power of the gospel does not come from within. The power of the gospel comes from God himself and it comes into our hearts. This is the only message with the power to change what is most broken, the power to change our hearts. And here it is, perhaps the clearest statement of all the gospel in the scriptures. If you were going to try to answer that question, what is the gospel? You could simply turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 4, because Paul says, I would remind you of the gospel. And then he spells it out for the next few verses. And the first truth of the gospel that he says is this, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. 
in that single phrase is enough to spend a lifetime contemplating that Christ died for our sins. The Bible tells us that all of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. We have departed from the good and perfect design that God has for us. The God of life. And if God is life, if he is the source of all life, if he is life eternally, then all of us, ever since that departure, our trajectory has been only towards death. The more that we move away from the source of life, the more that we move towards death. And physically, all of us know that there's no way around this. All of us know that from the time we are born, we begin to die. But even more so, the scriptures tell us that this is true of us spiritually. That we are spiritually dead, Ephesians chapter 2. Disobedient, following the prince of the power of the air. That we are enslaved to our own passions and our own desires. That we are alienated from God and we are without hope. And this is the reason why Jesus Christ came to this earth to die. Because only he could resurrect us from the condition of death. Christ Jesus died for our sins. He really and actually as a human in the flesh died on a Roman cross for our sins. Jesus of Nazareth, who lived over 2,000 years ago, he really suffered. He really bled. He really suffocated. His breath really expired, and he was really buried, put in a grave. And you could call this the day after he was buried, the day he was buried, the day that the universe held its breath. You see, up to this point, everything had gone according to the scripture, according to God's plan. He was born of a virgin, according to the scriptures. He was rejected by his people, according to the scriptures. He rode into Jerusalem on a donkey on the Passover week for the purpose of offering himself willingly as a sacrificial lamb, according to the scriptures. He was nailed and he was crushed, according to the scriptures. He did not resist according to the scriptures. They divided his garments and they cast lot for his clothes. They killed him along with the wicked. He was buried in the tomb of a rich man. All of these prophesied 800 to 1,000 years earlier, all of these according to the scriptures. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures and he was buried. So what if he stays in the grave? What does it mean if he stays dead, if he stays in the grave? What are we to make of the possibility, of any possibility, of there being life after death? The possibility of being able to overcome our own sin problem. The possibility of having our sins forgiven. The possibility that there could ever be newness in us. The one man who ever said that he could grant everlasting life who claimed that he was from the beginning. Before Abraham was, he said, I am. Who said he could offer us eternal rest. Who said that he could offer us a second chance. 
that he, could, he alone could remove what it is that is standing between us and our creator. What if he were to stay in the grave? See, we could only ever know that he was who he said he was if he were raised. That was the, confirm, the confirming sign that he was sent from God. In fact, he said so himself three times. On one occasion, at the beginning of his public ministry, he said, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. Another time he said the only sign that he would give that he was sent from God was the sign of Jonah. Just as Jonah was in the belly of the great fish for three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth. Another time he said, I am the resurrection and the life. Is he really the one who can give me what I most long for and what I most need? Paul says further down in verse 13, if there is no resurrection, then we are all still in our sins. There is no forgiveness. If we are still in our sins, there is only death. And he says, our faith is in vain if there is no resurrection. The universe was holding its breath that day when on the third day up from the grave, he arose. He was raised exactly according to the scriptures. Raised by the Spirit of God himself, death was swallowed up in victory. It could not hold him. Sin could not hold him. All the things that hold us down today could not hold the perfect, sinless Son of God. And a new man emerged. One who is called the firstborn of all creation, the firstborn from the dead, Jesus Christ, the resurrection and the life. And he is the one that everyone is longing for and the one everyone needs. So I think you would agree with me this morning that springtime has quite clearly come upon us today. Just look outside. Your colors that I see this morning tell me that you love that. You love the hope of springtime. Your presence and your excitement here tell me that you love the story of life emerging from death. You love the resurrection drama. Please understand that this resurrection is no fairy tale. It's no Disney drama. It's no wishful thinking. It's no distant hope. I am in full agreement with the prince of preachers, Charles Spurgeon, who said, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is one of the best attested facts on record. There were so many witnesses to behold it that if we do in the least degree receive the credibility of men's testimonies, we cannot and we dare not doubt that Jesus rose from the dead. And what this resurrection means is that a new eternal spring has been set in motion. One that will never disappear and one that is bringing life to more and more by his appearing. 
In Christ, the kingdom of heaven has been inaugurated here on earth. This is the gospel. And this spring, this eternal spring, and this hope, and this rest at long last for us is available to everyone who would come to Jesus Christ, the resurrection and the life, who would renounce their sins, who would renounce their former way of life and give themselves to him. This resurrection power is available today. Well before Jesus went to the cross, as Jorge read earlier, Jesus said to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. I am what everyone longs for, and I am what everyone needs most. And he said, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. So I turn the question over to you this morning that he posed to Martha. Do you believe this? Do you believe that Jesus Christ is truly the resurrection and the life? The one who all of us are longing for, whether we know it or not, and the one whom all of us need most. Let's go in the power of the resurrection today from this place. And let's live as people who truly believe that he has overcome sin, that he has overcome death, and that he provides hope for everyone who turns to him.